Welcome to The Skinny for Friday, November 17th. I'm Mitch Perry, the senior political reporter for the Florida Phoenix. Joined as I am every week with my two co-hosts, freelance reporter Ben Montgomery and creative loafing editor-in-chief Ray Roa. Good morning, guys. Good morning. How's everybody doing? All right. All doing, right. Doing all right. How you doing, Mitch? <laughs> yeah, great, great. Happy going into Thanksgiving the week last here. Last show before Thanksgiving. Uh, so later in the show, we're going to talk about, there was a presentation given this week in the Florida legislature on what it will re- require to modernize our prison system here with the financial estimates ranging between 6 to $12 billion. Of course, they could always maybe release inmates uh, and maybe, release, you know, take a safety valve there. But uh, we'll get into that later on, including with Senator, former Senator Jeff Brandis in studio. But first, we're going to talk about the Tampa Bay Sun. Who are they? They're the Tampa, Tampa Bay area's newest professional sports organization, a women's professional, soc- professional soccer team set to begin play next summer. And without any further ado, I'll hand off to Ray to introduce our guests. Yeah, so the launch of USL Super League this summer. Summer, it actually marks the culmination of a lot of years of, of planning and in the beginning of this other phase for USL, specifically its women's soccer pipeline, which aspirationally wants to be a fully operational kind of pathway from youth into soccer academy, pre-professional leagues, and then into the pros. Um, the implications for women's soccer on and off the field uh, potentially could be very huge. And um, it's pretty cool that the Bay Area will get to make its mark uh, when the sun um, takes the field at its temporary home, uh, a re- Blake High School Stadium. We're joined today in studio by Christina Uncle, a lawyer, FIFA referee, TV rules analyst, currently in the soccer club president phase of her career. And um, in a few minutes, at some point, uh, Denise Shilty Brown, head coach for the Tampa Bay Sun, will be here via Zoom from Scotland, where she is recruiting players. Um, After 17 seasons, she coached uh, her last regular season game at USF late last month. She left the school as USF's winningest uh, women's soccer coach, eight trips uh, with the Bulls to the NCAA tournament, and then we'll squeeze in as much as we can. But Christina, thank you for being here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. You should tell listeners that we got scarfed. We got scarfed today. I have the uh, yellow and and blue, or what are the official colors? What do you call them? Yeah, the official colors are yellow and blue. Um, I don't think they have it. I'll go double check our branding guideline. I'm pretty sure my football designer is going to hit us in the head if there was an actual name to it. But yeah, it's... It's the, uh, the tradition in the soccer football world, we, we call it globally, is uh, getting scarved. Um, and, and they're very Florida friendly. They're very light and, and nice. It's not like uh, my neck's not sweating it. I'm the sweatiest guy in the world. So uh, <laughs> we've got like half an hour today. That's, that's less than half of a football match. So we'll get in as much as possible. Hopefully we'll get some listeners today. Um, 813-239-9663 if you want to chime in. First off, um, I don't know if that August 5 game against Jacksonville is still on the schedule. Oh, uh, is there an August 5th, 2024? I, I, I read something on the USF website that, uh, Jack, but Jacksonville is not going to be in the league this year? No, Jacksonville okay. won't be in the league until okay. 2025. That okay. would be news to me. So what about, <laughs> when is the championship game so we can clear our schedules oh, for, for that? Oh, for sure. Uh, we have that scheduled in early June. That is the prospective uh, championship game, and we are obviously eyeing for that out of the gate. And uh, could we have potential to host that at Blake? If how, do you know we, we know how that works at, with USL yet, as far as neutral side or if there's going to be a home team? I think that's one of the attractions of starting out in the league in its infancy. Basically, its first steps as well as we're creating a lot of the league policies and guidelines right now. So they haven't yet figured out the playoff exactly whether it's the winner who's going to be hosting or if there's a neutral site. But you know, I'm obviously going to push for the winner to have that home field advantage. And Tampa is home to the main headquarters of of the USL um, Super League and. 
uh, something pretty serious. It's a sanctioned D1, and, and the requirements there are pretty intense. The, the league itself has to field eight teams across two time zones to even apply for that. Mm-hmm. Um, there are rules about the population of the metros that the teams play in, stadium requirements. That's why the one at Blake is going to go to 5,000. Um, a commitment from the teams to be have enough capital to be here for three years. So Tampa Bay Sun is a thing that is going to be part of our lives. It's not... Uh, some other teams, uh, and and uh, and you, they have to run a year-round full-time staff, and and then also notable, ownership must have a combined net worth of twenty-five million dollars, with one owner worth at least fifteen million. So, Christina, can you talk about how serious this ownership group is? Daryl Shaw, Burns owner David Laxer, former Blue Pearl executive Jeff Fox, how serious are they about making this team work, and and how do they convince you to lead this club? Considering everything you kind of had going on before yeah. that, you were pretty good. <laughs> You'd be surprised uh, in the sense that when they approached me, I uh, had not yet met any of them. And many of those who are from the Tampa Bay area are very familiar with the name Daryl Shaw uh, with the development projects he's doing in Ybor City and Gasworks and really kind of building out that urban core. And then David Laxer, uh, owner of Burns Steakhouse and the legacy his father built out for them. And then Jeff Fox, many are going to get to meet and know uh, with the Blue Pearl, as you mentioned. And I know when they asked me to come in and interview to be the president, first, it was felt really surreal for the fact that when I finished playing college soccer, there was no women women's professional soccer team. So like even the concept of playing women's pro soccer domestically wasn't even an option for me back in 2008, 2009. Um, So let alone leading a soccer club on the presidential side and role. Um, But that being said, I did kind of interview them a little bit more than they probably interviewed me because I have been part of women's professional soccer for over 17, 18 years. That's going to date me a bit. I got in the leagues uh, very early when I was like 19, 20. I got into the women's pro leagues when they first, the first two reiterations, right? With the WUSA, the WPS, and now the NWSL. And, you know, we've seen the, the, the good and the bad. We've seen ownerships groups come in as any sporting league that can come and just ruin a league that can, you know, either throw it off when it comes to salary caps or minimum caps or understanding what it is we're trying to build, which is a scalable business model and obviously entertainment and actually truly paying professional athletes as full-time professional athletes, especially on the women's side. Um, I haven't seen, you know, many of these women on the national team included, you know, be called professional athletes and they have like two, three jobs, five people to like a housing. And it's just, it was for me really ridiculous coming up, but everyone always said grow with us. And I'm like, okay, after five years, what's grow with us. And so this group and this ownership group um, are incredible individuals as humans in and of themselves. And then their ability to have a basically a servant leadership purpose driven is how they essentially drive their life. Uh, their feet, their give back to the community of not just the business side, but the philanthropic side. And more importantly, at least on this spectrum is understanding the barriers and the institutional barriers, whether created before their time, et cetera, for not just women alone, but women athletes specifically, and them having seen either their daughters or loved ones having to go through those types of scenarios. And they're really big believers in equity. And they said, this is something that we can use our platform and not power over someone, but power to do good in this community. So, um, yeah, I, I call them the three amigos. I get to hang out with them quite a bit. The um, wine is this the best wine in the USL Super League. Oh, yeah. I, yeah, David always kind of gets nervous when I keep promising the uh, the wine cellar. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so you talk about these great, great women um, and people in your life. Uh, my wife played women's soccer, and I know she really wished she could play for the person who's joining us on Zoom now. Denise Schilty-Brown is, is here. Um, coach, uh, you're in Scotland. I know we only have you for a little bit. Have you signed anybody yet? <laughs> Oh, yes. Everybody wants to leave. 
this tundra and come to the sunny Florida. <laughs> hmm, right on. Um, and, and by the way, if you have to go, just tell us. Uh, we'll make that happen. I appreciate you squeezing us in here. And we'll just kind of hop right in it, Coach. Um, you obviously know a lot of great people, a lot of great players. Many you've coached directly, um, some in the pros right now. How many of those folks do you think might join you at the Sun? Do you know yet? So, I, I mean, I don't know yet. We're we're still in the conversation phases, but um, yeah, one of my most experienced pros just worked out today and wondering kind of about how she can get involved. So even if they aren't involved directly, they want to be involved in some way. I mean, it, it's been one of the most meaningful and enjoyful, enjoyable parts of being a coach has been those relationships and maintaining them. Um, I, I think I've said this to Christina before, but one of the best the best aha moments is when you you're done with a player. They've played with you for four years in college and they've expended everything that they can do for you. And then you, you move on with them and they realize that this is a real relationship, one that they're going to have forever. And, uh, and I've really enjoyed that moment in coaching. And so because of that, I think I've nurtured these relationships and now, you know, not only do some of them want to come back and play, but the other ones just, they're excited for me or they want to be a part of it. So it's been really rewarding and uh, I'm really grateful to be in this position. All right. I'm going to ask you a journey question here, but I want to ask you another kind of gaffer question. Um, is this the kind of thing uh, where you know what kind of system you want to play in and will you look for players to make that work or are you going to build based on what you end up with on, on the roster? Oh, that's a great question. And I love that you said gaffer. <laughs> I um, did too. I appreciated that. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's really, really just like used so, um, you know, liberally here in Scotland. It's funny, but, um, you're the boss. So no, I, yeah, no, I, I think that I've enjoyed my model of play. Um, and it's evolved with me over time. And, uh, and I think I've gained a lot of like respect from coaches across the country and my players for the way I try to play. So absolutely trying to recruit, um, with that model in mind. I do think that the attacking third of the field can look a little bit different depending on on the you know the the strikers that we bring in whether it's one or two or you know what the their best qualities are and how to enhance them but in terms of how we build through the thirds of the field i don't think we have to compromise on you know finding a goalkeeper that can be very good with their feet finding center backs that are comfortable on the ball uh, midfielders that want to play not just kind of stationary midfield positions, but can rotate with one another. So those are those are examples of how I won't really compromise on my model of play. But, you know, it'll evolve with the girls that you have no matter what. Even when a, I think a, a coach wants to be strict with their model of play, if they don't have that flexibility, they're going to they're going to get stuck. And and, you know, my wife, girls she played with, they never got to play with you they always talk about how much they would have loved to play for you. And you were the winningest coach in, in Bulls uh, women's soccer history, as you alluded to the women, that, the girls who've turned into women that you've sent all across the world um, and just developed these people. How hard was it for the club to pry you away from that game? And what was the ultimate deal breaker for you as far as saying like, okay, I'm going to say goodbye to USF and, and take on this challenge. Oh, that is extremely kind of you to say. So I, I really appreciate that. Um, it didn't take much at all, if I'm being honest. I absolutely have enjoyed my journey at USF. And um, I take, you know, it's not, it wasn't easy to leave in that way because I, I really enjoy the environment and my, it's a family there, a true family. Um, people love me there and I love them and I loved going to work every day. But um, I do feel like God put it on my heart to be a professional coach. 
And I had shot that, um, you know, initially uh, for about a year and then um, was like, okay, this is where God wants me at at USF. And I signed a five-year contract. So I definitely felt like this was going to be my home probably until I retired. And I was comfortable with that, you know, still driven to win a national championship. But um, when the ownership group approached me, um, it felt like it, it just felt right. Everything about it felt right. They, what Christina said about them, you know, just the way they are, their, their disposition, the reason they got into this, why they wanted me, it, it felt like a calling, if you will. Mm-hmm. And um, so there was no hesitation. And then, I mean, they brought on Christina and I just have such a great relationship with her and I feel so good about working for her now. And that was an, an interesting scenario to be hired and not know who was going to be, you know, the person kind of um, working with me. So, you know, that was like, okay, what's that going to be? And then to find out it was Christina was, you know, really um, a relief first and then mm-hmm. exciting. I don't know if you got time for one more coach. Um, Absolutely. Go so for it. Playing on the international schedule as the sun will do kind of opens up the imagination to this idea of more international players on the roster. You're obviously in Scotland um, to work out uh, some folks and see how that goes. But um, what is that conversation like when you when you have those conversations with those international players? Um, is that calendar really appealing? And, and do you feel like that's going to be a great selling point for you as far as bringing people over here? Um, and I'll ask Christina another question about that later. Absolutely. I mean, my imagination gets really vast and wide when you talk about that because, you know, I want to be part of all the international tournaments and um, I absolutely want to build relationships with clubs across the country, um, or sorry, across the world. And uh, it's been exciting because when I have spoke, you know, when you look at the model of the NWSL, those players, because of the way the contract is laid out, they're not actually that transferable even right now so that's kind of opened up our scope and we're like okay the best players for us to bring in right now are going to be the ones playing you know the americans playing all over the world scattered across at all these countries and then the internationals also because when they finish it's going to be the the perfect time for them to end take their break and then start with us so it's been what we've been exploring and then obviously sharing players but um and and we've done a lot of research on the leagues the top leagues and when you go and look for Americans in those leagues, you find them, you know, on, on lots of the top teams and all of the top leagues. So um, reaching out to them has been very, very uh, rewarding because they're all interested and they're all entertaining um, our club. I, the location is honestly second to none. And I think they believe that the United States can put together a strong league and a really productive product right away. So um, it's it's been wonderful. Right on, and I know, and I know you got stuff to do. So we appreciate you um, doing that. And I think a segue uh, into some next questions for um, Christina. So thank you, and good luck on your trip, and get home uh, safely. Stay warm. You guys are awesome. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks, Coach. That's uh, Denise Schulte Brown. She is the head coach of the Tampa Bay Sun Football Club, which will start playing in Ebor this summer. Um, now you mentioned Ebor. Yeah. So yeah, my question: Where is this team playing? At? I'm sorry. Uh, they'll play it at Blake High School. Um, they'll practice in Ebor. 
Tell um, us about correct. the tell us about the development of that stadium and that piece of it in particular. What what are you guys going to do to the field there, Blake? Yeah, it's really exciting because right now we're do, we are developing two different uh, actual structures. Our training facility, which is located at Ebor on Seventh and Nebraska. Nebraska. Thank you. I was like, I'm from Sarasota, so I'm really getting to learn Tampa very well, which is great because that is a day in day out strength conditioning, soccer fields training, uh, front of house offices and staff. The and that's exciting, of course. Uh, but what really gets me excited is the stadium adjacent to Blake High School. Right there, you can see across from Armature Works, that stadium. Um, and why it excites me is we were taking a look at different possible locations, right? As far north as USF and as far south as Al Lang with the Rowdies play. Um, but one of the biggest things that really hit us was that within a 30-minute driving distance of the urban core of Tampa Bay area, you have 2 million people as opposed to USF and Al Lang, you got a million people. So that doubles it. And one of our biggest things is access and opportunities for people to come see the games. So as we know, the transportation there, the highways, it just allows people further than 30 minutes to be able to make it feel like a 30-minute drive to get in in that location. Another thing that really excites us, obviously, from letting our fan base be in the urban core and the permanent stadium still existing in the urban core. We don't have a lot of transfer when it comes to the permanent stadium. No one's going to really be changing much of their commute, which is great. Um, but what really, really excited me was, you know, when we found that location and we saw it on Google Maps, I got a little nervous at first when they said high school. I was like, oh, great. I got a lot of PTSD from some of these <laughs> other women's professional leagues when I used to go referee them. Um, one, there's no track. So we have the ability to have that field and literally build out um, the bleachers. There's a, mil- a minimum of $4 million that we are investing in this stadium to bring it to a Division One FIFA quality and grade. So a minimum of 5,000 seats will probably have a little bit more on that in and of itself. FIFA quality, grade one. Um, unfortunately, turf at the moment and uh, not grass turf but like artificial turf, but a high quality, uh, just so that we can work back and forth with uh, Blake High School for their football, et cetera. So it's a bit of more of a maintenance kind of a thing. Um, but meeting Principal Newton prior to us, when we identified it, we met with her, we said, hey, here's an idea we have. Is this something that this school and the programs would want to be part of before we even go to the school district and make a request? Um, so they've been with us and it's not been a partnership. It's been a relationship because we have thought about and discussed and even like their TV broadcasting uh, uh, professor yesterday, I come professor, but teacher uh, Joe's like, how can we make not only bring in professional women's sports, but also tie in your programs from your performing arts to your TV, to the other side of the sporting side, to the kids and be able to truly train and give them job skills and life skills um, that can kind of really flesh that out. So Blake, incredible location, obviously plenty of things to do pre and post after a game mm-hmm. will be typically on Saturdays and I uh, I, I don't know about you guys. I don't know if you guys seen Seattle Sounders, but they do a march to the match from the center and they come in. Like I envision that starting at our armature works area and going over that bridge right into the heart of that stadium. And we're going to bring you guys yeah. what football feels like in another country and get those vibes and TIFOs going. It's pretty sick. And it'll be cool if you can interface with a fan group that would organize that for you guys and can reserve that part of um, the stadium. Um, Coach kind of alluded to this and this phrase, see her, be her, is a saying that kind of gets floated around when we talk about uh, the impact of this league. Kids across the Bay Area get to see, I think the roster would be like 22, 26 women um, on this roster getting paid to be professional. Um, athletes and obviously because of the women's national team there's been some great conversation about and policy making uh, yeah. around pay equity in women's soccer um, I know that the Super League president uh, Amanda Vandervoort has said that the league wants to be competitive on player salaries um, I think the current uh, minimum salary in the NWSL which is the other D1 league is uh, 
just over $36,000, according to The Athletic. What do you expect a player payroll to be for the Tampa Bay Sun, and how will minimum salaries on this club compare to that figure from the NWSL? Yeah, so those discussions are happening right now, again, with the league as they're establishing them between the ownership groups, um, and the conversations are strong to be comparable, right, to essentially the industry. Um, what can you pay a player versus what you should be Playing a full professional athlete is the, the conversations that are happening, and they're happening in a very healthy relationship, as well as the balance of the other D1 league and WSL has been around for 10 years, mm-hmm. right? And this is our first year. So it's it's that balance of, yes, paying a player so they can be a true professional athlete at the same time as maintaining a good business um, and scalability plan as well, right? So the health of the clubs is also dependent upon the health of the league, and that's not something that's being taken out from like a microscopic, like it's being thought about in the big fabric of this picture. Um, so we will be comparable in many different ways to the NWSL, including pay um, with the realization and appropriately so um, on record. That's probably the, my legal brain and my yeah, equity yeah, yeah. brain saying is that, you know, in year two, there'll be a CBA most likely yeah. uh, with the player unions, right? Yeah. So it's that conversation of like, we don't have to wait for them to necessarily come in and negotiate those things. What's fair is fair. Yeah. And that's the great part of the ownership group collectively around the league is having those discussions, establishing what we think should be minimums, what the league can sustain right now, right? As we build up a league and then start getting corporate partnerships, you know, national broadcasting deals, like all of that takes time, Uh which feeds into, right, our ability to kind of scale this business in a healthy way. Uh We've had some reiterations before where maybe the Wusso paid way too much money and they Uh basically kind of burnt out. And then you have, you know, WPS was a bit of a mix of that. And then NWSL in the first couple of years was way too low and way too conservative mm-hmm. and to a detriment. So in the business side, we usually say first mover's advantage, right? Well, this is actually kind of nice to be like third mover's advantage because yeah. um, we there needs to be a healthy balance between the both and you can strike that at the same time as attaining to all those values. And we're seeing the CBA kind of play out on the men's side of USL right now. I think they're in the second year of, of that agreement. I'm assuming things like uh, spending limits, maximum benefit spends, all that stuff, That's minimum benefit, all yeah, talking housing, about now. Healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, staying with this idea about women playing soccer, um, I'm thinking about Chloe Ricketts on the Washington Spirit, Alyssa Thompson, who we saw in the World Cup, uh, Melanie Barsenas, uh, 15, 16-year-olds playing soccer on the highest level. a 13-year-old in San Diego. Yeah, it's, it's, mm. it's crazy. And, and I think the USL Academy has this um, kind of if you're good enough, you're old enough kind of mindset. Yeah. Well, uh, is there a minimum age to make a Super League roster? And is there any chance of seeing like a stud teenager um, either on the sun or visiting uh, when another team comes through? The latter, studs, studs. So um, many of us are on the mindset, and so is the league. If you're good enough uh, to play in the league, right, there's obviously the physical component, and then there's the mental component, and then the tactical component of it. So if you're good enough to fall in that category and be able to play and have impact, um, be surrounded, obviously, uh, as you can all imagine. Like, what were you guys doing between 13 and 15? I definitely was not in that type of a professional environment. Hanging out with Jerry in the coldest cap. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love it. Um, is creating also an environment that allows and protects, right, for, you know, where that person is in their stage of life. So those are the conversations. And truly, you know, even uh, head of soccer operations, Sam Ishii, we are sitting there one day at whiteboarding about, you know, the types of athletes, the skill sets, what we're looking for. And I had on the top of the board, it says the read define a women's professional athlete. And then I just ended up erasing re and I put just define a women's professional athlete because it has not yet been defined, mm-hmm. right? So we took it like take a look at the model on the men's side of it, right? And they get younger and etc. And then we t- just focusing on domestic American sports for soccer wise. I'm like, no, 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 no. Like what's going on over in Europe? Like how are they developing these athletes, homegrown players, uh, exporting players, uh, creating really just solid individuals. So defining what a women's pro athlete looks like 
I can't rely on my past. I can't rely on Sam issues a lot younger than me's past, right? Because it wasn't ever defined, and now we can mm-hmm. do it. In an age of equity and in a day of where corporate partnerships and investments are happening, um, you know, now that we finally have the metrics to be able to support them, right? They're waiting for us to get those metrics. It's like that job, right? We need five to seven years of experience, but no one wants to give it, right? But we are essentially going to be defining that. Like the Academy Youth Players is is something that's different from USL, where that individual isn't a paid professional athlete, still retains their NCAA uh, rights to it, but can still compete and train in our environment and atmosphere. And that's very particular to the USL. Um, and that was one of the big attractions for me in the USL league for the Super League is that instead of going from pro down, which is what the majority of league, soccer leagues here in the United States do, it's the youth up. So we're not building the pyramid from the tip and then going down and wondering why our foundation is shaky, right? Mm-hmm. The foundation is being established and grown up on the women's side. It's still developing in Super League or USL in its in its, um, in its categories. Um, and that gives us that benefit and that ability to say, how is the European model doing it? We're going to be behind. We already are behind with all due respect on the U.S. women's national team side sure. of it because they did exactly the same thing. They just basically flipped the chromosome and did the same thing with the women's side and I mean, PSG's numbers the other day was like 14 million. Yeah, and you can see it on the field now with some of these international teams that have had academies and girls coming up. I mean, they are dominating the World Cup. People want to give the U.S. the girls a hard time, but the fact is the other clubs were just a lot better. Yeah, I'm a big believer in like not saying, what are they doing? What are they doing? You know, how do we compare to them? How do we? No, 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 just do you. And if you do it really, really, really well, everyone's going to come to that and its quality is going to attract. And so for me, you know, I... I'm, our goal, my goal, think big, act small, is to create Tampa Bay Sun FC as a global club among the names of the Barcelonas and the Real Madrids and the Chelsea's. And so that's where my brain goes. And it's like, okay, now that I got that puzzle piece, right? And we figure out that strategic plan, now think small. What are the small dominoes I can do to start building up on that so it crescendos? This is why you're the boss. And I would love to sneak <laughs> in one or two two more questions. Um, thinking about uh, the NWSL, there's no college draft for Super League. That calendar is obviously appealing. Um, what about Super League? Is there something about Super League that might appeal enough to an NWSL player that would kind of get them to make the jump? Would Super League welcome that? I mean, I know a lot of people think, oh, we can't support two leagues, but look at Europe, right? It's not exactly apples to apples, but there is enough room for two leagues. Oh, 100% so enough. Do you think some players would make that? What would appeal to somebody in the NWSL to come play Super League? Yeah, so we have had interest in NWSL players who are on the roster who are having starting time and minutes uh, on other NWSL teams. So it's not the third or fourth string players or those who aren't getting minutes. There's actual people. And, you know, two of the common themes that point out, so nothing necessarily particular, is one, the ability to grow and believe in a club and say, like, we get to be in the ground floor of creating the culture of that club, right? So unfortunately in women's professional soccer in the United States. There's a lot of issues that have marred, um, you know, clubs historically and systemically. So the ability to step in and do something and hit the big reset button has been something very, very attractive. Um, and right, if an individual is not a franchise player, everyone wants to be a franchise player, right? <laughs> yeah. So that's one of the main uh, main attractions uh, in and of itself is to be able to step in and be that kind of a franchise player. Um, and kind of going in just a nod to Denise is after those 17 years at, you know, USF, I was explaining to someone, I was like, you have homegrown players she brought up in the thing in the system at USF. She had people she recruited that came in and they've all fallen in love with Tampa Bay. So mm-hmm. many of these individuals are talking about, it's not an introduction to Tampa Bay. They already bleed Tampa Bay. They already, it's the heart. They want to come back and do it. So um, many of these individuals mm-hmm. who have been approaching is because they love the area, they love the region, they love this community. They want to get back to the community. Um, and they know that they can be on the ground floor creating something that's really, really cool with us. 
Right on. Christina Uncle is the president of Tampa Bay Sun FC, which will kick off its inaugural season at Blake High School in August. I'm right? stoked uh, about this. August 2024. August sir. 2024. I think we get 10 to 12 games over there, right? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, we do and do. And uh, we're going to have about 14 games okay. at minimum okay. at the moment. So you're going to get, and then obviously we go to, you know, playoffs. Sure. We definitely have 16 games. Uh, mm-hmm. And like I said, I'm pushing for home field advantage. And you can get your season ticket deposits right now. Get in line. Um, that obviously preserves your right for a season ticket member. And it's not many times you get to launch a professional franchise, let alone be a founding season ticket member uh, and be able to live uh, the ride with us. So definitely go get your season ticket deposits and go buy some for your friends, family, loved ones. Plus, we got merch dropping with the Tampa Bay Sports Group here. I think they're opening up West Shore now or something today. Yeah. So you can actually going to get our stuff in brick and borders. And- cool. Cool. Well, thank you so much for being here. Uh, we'll link to the team and, and the club in, on uh, the WMNF.org website. Thanks so much, Christina. And uh, best of luck to you. you. Appreciate it. Yeah, okay. We'll take a quick summer. break and be back with Senator Jeff Brandis. Hi, I'm Kenny Coogan. Join Annie Ellis and myself as we co-host the Sustainable Living Show here on your community-supported radio station, WMNF Tampa. On Sustainable Living, we bring you conversations with local experts on sustainable topics. Please come share with us every Monday morning at 11 in our talks about alternative energy sources, organic gardening, farming, and everything in between. Sustainability is a balance of people, profit, and planet. Together, we will make a difference. All right. Welcome back to the Skinny here. It's 11.35 a.m. You're back here on WMNF. So we're going to transition from talking about that new, exciting professional women's soccer league, which is going to be coming, a team coming here to Tampa Bay uh, next year. We're going to talk about criminal justice issues here. And actually, there was a very interesting news on that front this week. Florida lawmakers were presented Wednesday with a detailed blueprint of what it would cost to modernize its prison system, with financial estimates ranging anywhere to make major plan changes from $6 billion to nearly $12 billion to repair buildings and construct new facilities with hundreds of millions of dollars more needed to pay for staffing. The initial report came from a global consulting firm, KPMG, selected by the Florida Department of Management Services in 2022 to produce a 20-year master plan for the Florida Department of Corrections. They will deliver that final report on December 1st. Now, the first slide that was presented to the committee on Wednesday illustrated the seriousness of the problem. It said bluntly, quote, FDC's current path is unsustainable. Joining us to talk about the report at what needs to be done is former Pinellas County Republican State Senator Jeff Brand is the founder of the Florida Policy Project, a think tank that looks at issues like the state's correction system. And also on the Zoom line with us is a criminal justice advocate, Jackie Dunn, with her group Data for Change. Uh, Senator Brandis, thank you for joining us. Yeah, great to be with you. Thanks. All right, Jeff. Thank you so much again. On very short notice, we were able to bring you in here, and I really appreciate that because uh, nobody has been more uh on this issue over the years in the legislature like yourself. And now that you're no longer in the legislature, you're still working on producing reports about this. So Senator Brandis, we'll talk about this. This um, legislature, of course, now were you there when the, when the money was allocated for this report? I was, in fact, uh, if you go back to the pre-COVID budget, uh, it was actually put in that budget and then it was vetoed as part of the COVID vetoes. Uh, and so that was the original kind of version of this. And then two years later, they put that money back in the budget to do this study. And so it's great to finally see it coming out. We knew it was desperately needed, but nobody had looked at the prison system in, oh 
almost two decades um, to really evaluate where we're going. This, the prison system in Florida largely doesn't correct behavior. It largely just warehouses people, and it warehouses people in a facilities that are falling apart. And that's essentially what the report says. It says, listen, you can't keep going like this. Um, I, I remember going on a trip to, to death row and meeting some death row inmates. And I remember that uh, this at this facility, they actually couldn't open the door to death row. So like the, they, they, were, they had to find the one corrections officer who knew how to, to work the door in order to get that open. But but that, that facility is 100 years old. So it just, just tells you kind of how dilapidated these facilities are. Again, the report shows almost 500 of the housing units are operating without air conditioning. And the main point that they, they made as part of this is, listen, you're never going to be able to attract and, and retain employees because they're, they're working in a challenging environment already. Don't make it doubly challenging to put them in there in the middle of the summer in sweltering heat. Yeah, so they, they laid out three big options here. They called it Modernize, uh, which is the $12 billion package. Number two is Manage, $9 billion. Three, Mitigate, $6 billion. Uh, and they also, uh, Senator Brandon, as they mentioned, so right now we have roughly 85,500 prisoners in this current system uh, right now. The consultants say with current staffing, it can really only adequately handle about 87,000 prisoners, which could happen as early as next year. And then they projected that we could have a prison population of up to 123 thousand by the year 2042 um in terms of the the report that came out with these and it looked like you know th- these we're talking such huge numbers of you know financially here but also it said in the report i didn't even put this in my story i had to put so much other stuff in there but it also said essentially there is a way of we don't have to pay this much and that is uh you could release prisoners uh, out of the facility that wasn't even discussed at all on Wednesday, um, but they are really stuck. Your your former colleagues, many of them who don't see the the way you have at least yet in terms of like the seriousness of this issue. Um, what are your thoughts in terms of they're going to have to make some hard decisions here in terms of financing or letting people out? What do you think? Well, look, do? we have three 300- hundred people in the National Guard that are men and men and women that are service members that are serving in the National Guard that are currently we're supposedly temporarily housed and working in corrections facilities that's essentially turned into a permanent duty station for those individuals and that's obviously not a long-term correct implementation or usage of the National Guard to to fill in essentially where we can't hire corrections officers because if they didn't have those 300 they would be doing emergency releases today and that's kind of the dirty little secret out there is that those people are just there to keep them from having to do uh, these emergency releases, but look, I think I think it's time to evaluate the entire system. It's entire to it's time to evaluate sentencing and everything else. And if we don't evaluate that, then they need to set aside billions and billions of dollars to modernize this prison system because it's not getting better. Even these facilities that are that are you know most of the facilities are not in the adequate kind of world. They're either in the poor or critical world. Uh, and so it, it, I think it it just highlights the need for a comprehensive review of the criminal justice system, not only the prison system, but also sentencing laws, how we're dealing with elderly, how we're dealing with uh, the, with these long-term sentences, uh, and, and kind of come back to a realization that, listen, we're either going to pay to house these people forever, or, or we're going to have to re- revise the way that we do sentencing in Florida. Well, bring, it, bring on, I'm sorry, Ben. Uh, does any of this has to have to do with uh, the no parole in Florida? 
Yeah, obviously, a lot of it has to do. I mean, Florida has not had parole since 1983. And so when you hear about people getting out on parole, there's probably 10 or 12 people a year that actually make that. And understand, they've been in prison since the early 80s mm. um, and sometimes before. Those are the ones that are parole eligible. But I think there's a growing contentions of state attorneys and other individuals who uh, who believe that we should look at parole and bringing parole back. It's, it's really important all, uh, as a transition process. Today, if you want to transition out of prison, you get 50 bucks in a bus pass. And, uh, you know, pat on the back that says, you know, hope they ever don't see you back here again. Yeah. Unfortunately, many people you do see back again because they're transitioning with 50 bucks in a bus pass. Yeah. Wow. Want to bring to the conversation Jackie Dunn. She has been a criminal justice advocate in the last couple of years after her son got incarcerated and is in the system now. Jackie, are you with us? Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for joining us, Jackie. So talk about, if you could, for a couple of minutes here about your own um, evolution, if you will, into caring so much about this. And like so many people that I've met covering this story, and I know Senator Brannis over the years, it's people who who have you know loved ones in the system itself that make them uh, kind of uh, justice warriors, if you will, in terms of trying to reform the system. Talk about that, your you know interest in this and how it all came about. Sure. I mean, you you gave the precursor. My son um, was um, charged with DUI manslaughter at the age of 20 um, in, in November of 2020. And prior to that, um, being a conservative Christian Republican woman, I just, you know, I never had any exposure to the criminal justice system by the grace of God. And and just, you know, just was, a, a, was I call it blissfully ignorant, you know, because we just, you don't hear about it on the news. You don't hear about what the taxpayers are paying. And I've been a data analyst for 25 years. I started to kind of dig into the data once um, once we were faced, you know, once I was feeding from the fire hose, so to speak. And um, and I, you just can't unknow it. Once you start to peel the onion back and every layer is worse than the layer before, I'm like, oh my gosh, how did we not know this? How did I not know the state of Florida um, criminal justice and what we pay for and what we get in return? And so I, Quit my job earlier this year um, to start not, uh, Data for Change, which is a data-driven nonprofit. And my goal is to educate um, people like me on the current state of criminal justice. And then I also meet with legislators and, and um, collaborators and other advocates to um, provide data any way I can, especially um, that related to what the De Department of Corrections is putting out. So, um, yeah, so I, I'm, I'm fighting for my son, I'm, but I'm fighting for so many others. And it's not that people don't deserve to be punished, but the excessive incarceration that we're facing in Florida and frankly across the United States is just gotten out of control and nobody's looking at the, um, the actual adverse effects to public safety that we're causing. Like Jeff alluded to earlier, you know, my son's got 18.75 years as a first time offender. Um, because it was a smaller county and a couple other factors, he would have gotten eight in Duval. I mean, he would have gotten eight in a bigger county. So the variations are all over the place and he doesn't have probation when he gets out. So you, again, 18.75 years in prison for someone who's never been in trouble his whole life. And then you come out and you don't have any step down and you just expect them to not recidivize. And so I've been studying recidivism at length for different segments of the organization or of the of the incarcerated population now to see like what is the true risk of these different segments of the group of the like the elderly and the DUI manslaughters and the the youth the youthful offenders that have served over 20 years and you know different scenarios and and we're we're just completely over incarcerating based on fear instead of facts and so that's where um I'm just trying to like play my part 
I mean, I applaud um, Jeff Brandis. He's definitely been a, um, a spearhead on this. This KPMG report is a godsend for those of us that are fighting. And like I said, at the criminal justice committee meeting, there's they're, they're missing the fourth option. The fourth option is let some people out or, or switch to, to less expensive non-traditional incarceration. You know, so it's it's forcing a hand that needs to be forced. And we've got to do something proactive or it's going to become reactive. And we, no one wants that. So, um, so yeah, that's how I got into it. Right, right. Now, so part of the the KPMG plan talked about air conditioning. Uh, Senator Branch, you mentioned this a moment ago. And certainly this is something that has become, well, I, I, advocates have been calling for this for years. Um, as they, some are stunned and shocked to know that that's not, that 20, 75% of the facilities in Florida do not have that right now in this incredible hot heat and humidity that we live in the state. And by the way, that some of a national issue as well. Um, in this plan, uh, $582 million is listed as what it would cost to provide air conditioning for all the state facilities. Uh, and I, we've got some sound here. So at the, at the com- committee meeting on Wednesday, the presenters from KPMG were laying it all out. They weren't really getting any much pushback from the lawmakers until we heard from uh, in the Senate Criminal and Civil Justice Appropriation Committee from uh, State Senator Jonathan Martin from the Fort Myers area. He asked officials with KPMG why why they even put this money into the into the plan here. Let's listen to that. that that's probably what I'm um, trying to get. I was like, what's the impetus for? Um, You've you done a very, very in-depth study. What was the impetus for the air conditioner, uh, air conditioning at a very, very expensive, uh, I won't say it's expensive or cheap, but it's a lot of money. It's a lot of resources. Mm-hmm. It's, it's changing the way the prisons are built. Uh, it's changing the way the corrections officers do business. What was the impetus for that? And if it was litigation, do you have any, um, are there cases, are there settlements, are there, are there issues that happen in other states that are happening in Florida um, I, I know we had a very hot summer in Florida. I'm unaware of a single injury or death uh, that occurred because of heat in Florida prisons uh, this summer. And I, I just I want to make sure that the $582 million plus, I know what my air conditioner costs to maintain every year, it's a sizable chunk, well into eight figures. Um, is it worth the investment? Um, if there's literally been zero injuries, zero deaths in Florida due to the lack of air conditioning, because we do have air conditioned beds. Madam Chair, um, probably if, in terms of cases that are very well known, Texas, another large, you know, southern state, um, very humid portions of the state um, and has both conditioned and non-conditioned units and is under litigation, active litigation and oversight as a result of that. That's probably the best case that we could refer you to. Um, We've built this plan with options. We're not saying any of these are take it or leave it. Um, As you know, if you drill down into that 582 million, some of that is, as Darren mentioned, 1.3 million for a site that was never built to your point, design-wise, to accommodate duct work and running wire, et cetera, in poured concrete or cinder block type of configurations. So the optionality here is there can be decisions um, that the state can make to say, you know what, the cost of these is is not worth it. That is 
I would offer your all calculus as policymakers to make. We're trying to provide you the options that we see as leading practice and that would come with a modern design. And it was also something that was, you know, a topic that was brought up to us very early in this project to say there's a lot of uh, uh, stakeholders and policymakers that want to know what those costs are. But that, that number we've summarized here in the report will be detailed out and uh, we'll be able to show you which are the ones that fall into certain buckets because there might be some that you decide yeah, maybe this isn't worth worth it for us, um, but but I would offer that that's a judgment for you all to make, and we'll provide you the data to do so. That was the voice of a KPMG member. That's the consultant group that is looking at reforming or in terms of what the prison system here in Florida needs. And the other voice was that of uh, Jonathan Martin, the chair, who is not just any state senator. He's the chairman of the Criminal Justice uh, Committee, which means he's got significant influence. Former Senator Jeff Brand is. Um, what, tell me just your thoughts about hearing that exchange. Well, look, I mean, I think, <clears throat> I think if if you truly understand and walk through these prisons as I have, and you see what it's like to be in the summer. Uh, in fact, when I used to take tours and other legislators through, I, I truly tried to only do it in June and July, and August, so that they could actually feel what people felt like. I mean, the wave of heat that opens comes out when you kind of open these doors, and you realize the conditions not only that the the officers are in, but that the inmates are in as well, and 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 how how they, there's no escaping. Um, and, and so I think it just highlights that the challenges that the, the overall system is facing. Look, the, the report indicated that they needed over $2 billion just in immediate critical capital needs. That's That was you know highlighted uh, specifically in the report. Understand that the correction system, at least even when I was chair, we would only allocate $10 million towards those types of capital needs, those, those types of improvements. We're talking about half a percent of what the report kind of lays out is necessary. And this just shows decades of deferred maintenance, almost ignoring the entire system. Uh, and, and that's what's gotten us here today. There has been no real vision for where we where these prisons were, uh, should how they should be maintained. Um, but frankly, there's no real vision for where these prisons should be located. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's the other missing piece. Look, if you go to prison in South Florida, you know, Miami-Dade, any of those Tampa Bay area, you're likely going to serve your time up in the panhandle separated by miles and hours from your friends and family. Visitation is just almost impossible for some of these families to get to. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a major problem because what most of these inmates are getting out. You know, 85, 90% of these, of these individuals are going to end up back in communities. And we know one of the strongest things that we can do to help with recidivism is keep those family ties together. But if you haven't seen your loved ones in sometimes years... That's a major problem, and it's a much better. And so when, when we're citing these new facilities, we've got to cite them near near places that have, uh, you know, families right. and where they can be interact. Not only for that reason, but you can't find healthcare professionals. You can't find psychiatrists and psychologists and, and, and counselors in these extremely rural areas. Uh, and, and so it, it, it helps with a variety of things. In addition... We have a growing elderly and aging population. And so the report calls on, we are to have to build hospitals inside the prison system as well because we have in, individuals with dementia, individuals- uh, Yeah, they talk about a lot of hospitals. A, a, lot, of of, yeah. a lot of hospital space yeah. that has to come in. I mean, Florida's population uh, is growing older in prison uh, and we have about 85,000 people incarcerated in the, in, in the prison system today. Jackie Dunn, what was your thoughts when you heard uh, Senator Martin make those comments the other day? Yeah, um, to me, it was just um, I was really kind of taken aback because he's been fairly, you know, fairly, you know, thoughtful when it comes to criminal justice topics in the past when I've met with him. But simply, I mean, first of all, 
I, I specifically asked the Department of Corrections, do you track heat related deaths and illnesses? And they don't. They basically call them nat natural causes, which so we don't even know how many people were actually killed by, you know, for heat heat that le led to their death or heat that led to a suicide. So I, I don't even I don't I disregard exact that whole that whole part of his statement. Um, my son's in, in air conditioning, um, so he's he's very happy. But I also, you know, the other part of this that Jeff had mentioned is that, you know, they've had to close dorms at like, say, Suwannee County and some of these um, areas that have newer dorms in good shape that have air conditioning and move them to places that don't have air conditioning because they can't staff them. So we're not even using the air conditioning that we do have. So um, so that's one side of it that is just just ludicrous to me. But again, if you move the people, then you're moving people away from families. Like, so it's all just this vicious cycle. But um, but then the other side of it is that to even to question not putting air conditioning in new construction does, doesn't even make a, a one ounce of sense to me. I can see the pushback on some of these older facilities that uh, will will air conditioning even, you know, sufficiently cool them the way that they're built. You know, so that I could see a little bit of, you know, back and forth on, but to, to actually question just not putting it in a brand new construction facility. I, I mean, I just I was just really surprised that that um, that level and length of questioning that that, that as, as long as that went on. That's the voice of Jackie Dunn. She is a criminal justice reform advocate. Her son is in uh, incarcerated in one of the facilities here in Florida. And also we're speaking with former uh, Republican state senator Jeff Brandis from here in the Pinellas County area. Um, senator Brandis, uh, now, you know, and you were part of this. We, you heard this over the years about how uh, correction officers were not getting paid anything really significantly. And that has, has gone up the last few years. I think it was only $33,000 uh, for a starting um, correction officer base salary back in 2020. It's now to 45,000 now. So that's significant. Um, it probably possibly go up more, but that is part of the important parcel, which you've always talked about. It relates to air conditioning as part of all of this uh, KPMG report, which is the safety and security. It's not just about the inmates. It's about the uh, officers as well. And, and again, you know, they need to think about that. Senator Ed Hooper talked about the other day, like, are we, if we don't do anything, are the feds going to come in? It seems like these guys, and most of them are when up there in these committees, um, they, I don't know, do you think this jarred them to, like, realize they've got to do something? But, you well, know, look, the, the, those that have been around for a while have heard long enough about how challenging the situation is, and many of them have toured facilities and seen how challenging it is. Uh, you know, I've toured facilities, and I've seen roach-infested kitchens. I've toured facilities, and I've talked to their wardens, and they'll tell you that they have, and if they have dorms, their air-conditioned dorms have less violence than their non-air-conditioned dorms uh, because people are just irritable and, and angry and everything else that goes on when you're hot and sweaty all day long. Uh, and so I, I, this all plays out. Uh, and good luck, again, hiring corrections officers, even at $45,000 a year in a dangerous environment in a situation where you're physically miserable all day long. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it, it, it kind of all plays together. But I think it really speaks to the state of Florida has lacked a vision for its Department of Corrections and, frankly, its criminal justice system for decades. Nobody has taken ownership of this issue. The, the governors have not. The the 
the legislature clearly has not, and cast a vision for what they want it to look like. And so, you know, the Florida Policy Project is really based out of this idea that we should be following best practices. And that should relate to our criminal justice and prison system. Listen, everybody wants a safer, uh, more public safety. Everybody wants better outcomes when it comes to, to the prison system. The way that we get there is implementing best practices. Nobody will tell you 50 bucks on a bus pass going home is the best practice. Nobody will tell you housing people in air conditioned facilities with nothing to do all day long and no education opportunities is the best practice. The state of Florida should embrace best practices. And when we're doing this major transition, which frankly has to be done, they should implement best practices along the way. I think we actually have a caller here who's been waiting patiently. Excuse me here, uh, Jackie, I'm going to go to our caller right now. I don't have this person's name, but uh, hi, you're on WMNF right now. Hi, uh, my name is Nicole. Hi. Hi, how's it going? Um, I would just like to contribute to the conversation a little bit, uh, mostly related to um, uh, the local jails. Um, it, you know, it's the same thing there. I was recently incarcerated, unfortunately, and as a result of the uh, staffing issue, we were only allowed out of our cells 8.2% of the time. Mm. Um, furthermore, uh, you know, I don't know if the, the report addresses the um, changing uh, population in terms of, you know, lesbians, transgender uh, folks. Um, I was housed with somebody who, you know, identified as a woman, but, um, you know, uh, you know, physically, I was a man. They didn't know. They had nowhere to put this person, so he was on lockdown. She was on lockdown the entire time. Um, you know, it, uh, it, it's excess, It's not a correction system. It's a punitive system. Yeah, there. You know, there are people who are sitting in these jails waiting for, uh, begging to go to prison. First of all, or waiting for a trial. Right. Not even offered an A. I was in a female pod. They didn't even offer a, a Narcotics Anonymous class for women. I mean, it, 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 was, it was a horrible experience, but um, I 100 percent want to get involved with uh, in any way for, for reform. Um, I, it's uh, embarrassing. And furthermore, um, you know, people need to get involved at the local level. Uh, I don't think that a lot of folks are aware of, uh, you know, how much of our property taxes go uh, towards, um, you know, uh, local law enforcement. It's a significant increase every year. Um, if they actually read the financial statements and took a look at, like, the other post-employment benefits, they would realize why our property taxes go up so much. Um, so I think that if, you know, the community becomes more involved and is actually aware of what's happening inside of these jails and prisons, that there will be a change because they don't know. Right. We were threatened with um, punishment if we grieved. Um, you know, and um, furthermore, I think April point two percent of the time out of a cell is, I mean, statutorily, I would think torture. You know, I, I mean, there's a reason that people who are on lockdown have to be let out. You know, one hour a day, three times a week. I think and it highlights the the huge inside of these jails. Thank you, yeah. thank you, man. Yeah, yeah, I think it highlights the huge variation that we see, at least in the jail population uh, across the state of Florida. Obviously, we have rural com communities and we have urban communities. Mm -hmm. Just yesterday, I was at, I was at the Hillsborough County Jail uh, touring their facilities, and and you know what what. Sheriff Chronister's doing is incredible with as far as his his programs that he has going on for uh, individuals that uh, you know I saw individuals getting you know welding certificates and yep. uh, ASA certified certificates. Those are the types of things that frankly just most jails in Florida can't offer or don't offer. But you have some best practices that are beginning to emerge even amongst yep. our, our jails um, that need that that frankly are those those just 
those services are not even offered in our prison system. And so I think mm-hmm. just moving towards best practices is something that the state of Florida could do and should, should embrace. You have talked a yep. lot about programming. Jackie, um, and we only have a short time left here, but Jackie, um, your son, where, you know, wherever he's at, what, what's that like there? Is, there? is there a programming available for him at all? Yeah, there's programming. Uh, he's in the faith-based program, so we're, we're happy with that. He's fairly new into the system, so um, so he's in a good place. The problem is the more time you have left, the less programming that's available because the less programming that's available because they don't have because they have the vacancy issues. So the punitive issues of of staffing uh, have a have a like a domino effect down the line. So um, so I yeah, so so there is a lot of challenges with with what's available, especially if you have a longer sentence. And then um, and, and, and to piggyback on what Jeff said, my county, I'm from Nassau County and my sheriff, Sheriff Bill Leeper, is now the president of the Florida Sheriff's Association. And we have an amazing county. He's got lots of, you know, diversion programs. Right. He's got a full time mental health coordinator, all the things. And so I'm hoping to we can collaborate more with the FSA at a level that we never have been able to before because okay. he's. Be so forward. Thank, Thank you, you Jackie. Jackie done great to talk yeah. to you. Data for change. Senate, Senator, former Senator Jeff Brandis. Jeff, thanks for coming in. Really appreciate that. Also, I thank our guests from earlier in the hour, Christina Uncle from Tampa Bay Sun and Denise Brown, the new coach. With Ben Montgomery, Ray Roa, I'm Mitch Perry, Skip Sassy, uh, our, our new answer, phone answer back there, uh, Nayla. Um, we are here at WMF, the skinny, 88.5. Let's stay tuned for Joelle and Elke. Joelle and Shelke. And we'll be back next Thank week. Thank you. Right, Thank you. We'll get it right one of these days. Elke Summers. <laughs>